You're going to be very, very excited because we're moving on to another question. We're going to be moving to question five. Question five. So we have been looking at the, the doctrine of the Word of God. Basic, basically, this, is, this has been a um, study on doctrine. Um, sort of a short, systematic theology. And we've looked at questions one, two, and three. Um, question one, the chief end of man. We took one lesson to look at that. And two and three, which we're dealing with the Word of God. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I thought you were Paul. I was about to come give you notes. Well, when he comes in, I'll step down and give him some. And so, question four deals with the attributes of God. What is God? The reason why we're not going to deal with that one today is because we're doing a series on Sunday evenings on, on what? The attributes of God. So, I don't, I don't think it would be really necessary to spend time looking at question four because we're doing that in the evening. So, we're going to move to question five. Now, questions five and six really together deal with um, the, the unity and the plurality of God. It's dealing with the Trinity. And question five is really important to understand and grasp before you move to question six, which deals with the details of the Trinity. So we want to look at question five today, which is basically the unity or the oneness of God. So I'm going to read the question, and then if you could all read the answer out loud. That'd be wonderful. And if you need a catechism, I can give you one. I have three up here. If anybody needs one. They've all got them. Fantastic. Are there more gods than one? Great. Thank you so much. Well, let's have a word of prayer before we look at this question this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee that we have not been left in darkness with regards to who Thou art, but that You have spoken. You could have stayed in an eternity of silence, never having spoken to us, or we're not deserving of any revelation from Thee. We know that all of our joy is in knowing Thee. So, Father, we pray that as we look at who Thou art, that You would open our eyes and apply these truths to our hearts. Bless Thy people for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So, if you look at the answer once again, the answer says, There is but one only, the living and true God. One only, the living God. And true God. And that's a statement of the oneness of God. Now, living, meaning that God is alive. He is not like the inanimate idols that were spoken of as in Isaiah 45, for example. He is the true God in opposition to all the other gods, which would be false. There is, by implication, only one God. One, only, the living and true God. We talk about the oneness of God. There's three things that we can think about, and I gave you notes here. First, numerically one. Second, uniquely one. And third, simply one. Okay? So numerically one, uniquely one, 
and simply one. If you can remember those three things, then you'll get an A on the test afterwards. Numerically, uniquely, and simply. And Miss Judy will get $5 to the winner. <laughs> right? <laughs> Numerically, uniquely, and simply one. In the first place, think about what we mean by numerically one. Okay? When we say that God is one, I want you to have in your mind the number one. Not, not two, not three, not four, but one. Okay, he is one. There is only one God, one single God. There are no other gods. Um, polytheism. Does anybody know what polytheism is? Right, a multiplicity of gods. Can anybody give me a world religion that believes in polytheism? Right, that's right. Can anybody give me a cult that believes in polytheism? Anybody think of a cult that believes in many gods? Who would call themselves Christian? Mormons. And why, do you, why would Mormons be polytheistic? Right, right. Excellent. So there are many, many gods. Yeah, there's, they actually believe in a mother god, a father god. Um, the, I believe the Book of Mormon says that as God once was, man shall be, something to that effect. They believe that man will be deified in the end. So that's exactly right. Mormons are polytheists. But Christians, Christianity historically has not been, and we want to make implications from this statement to the Trinity a little bit later, but... First, numerically one. First passage is 1 Kings 8 and verse 60. 1 Kings 8 and verse 60. I'm going to turn there and read that for you when I can find it here. So 1 Kings 8 and verse 60 has Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon says this, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. None else. So, by implication, there is one God. There is none else besides Jehovah. Another passage we could turn to is Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. And while I turn there, if somebody wouldn't mind turning to Isaiah 44 and verse 24, when you find that, if you wouldn't mind reading it. But Isaiah 43 and verse 10 says this, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So, hone in on that last statement. Before me, there was no God formed. Now, that right there destroys Mormonism, okay? Because Mormonism is saying that there are many gods before me, there'll be many, there'll be gods after me. This destroys that idea. There was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. God is saying, I am the only God, right? As far as you think about time, there is no time when there was another God. And by implication, God is saying that I never did not exist. And 
One time when we talked about the attributes of God, we talked about how um, there are some beings that are necessary and some that are contingent. And necessary means it cannot not be. It cannot not be. Contingent means it can not be. So God cannot not be. God exists. A property of His being is existence. God is, right? But men can be or cannot be. They're not necessary. God decided to create men. But God is necessary. He's the only necessary being. Everything else is what we call contingent. So God says, before me there is no God. After me there is no God. I am the only God. Isaiah 44 and verse 24. Does anybody have that? Thank you. That's very good. So, what would you draw from that verse as far as implications for there being one God? Why, why would we say from just from reading that that there's only one, only one God? When the act, he's talking about the act of cre- the work of creation, right? Who created? Who created according to this verse? God, right? God alone. And he makes it very clear. Stretches forth the heavens, what? Alone. That spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Now this is not, this is a little off topic, but just want to make this note. If you talk to, let's say you talk to a Jehovah's Witness um, or Mormon, and they say Jesus is not God, Right? Jesus is not God. They say Jesus was created. Created. And then um, they may say, a Jehovah's Witness will say from Colossians, that Jesus was active in creation. But Jesus is not God. Okay? Jesus acted in creation, but Jesus is not God. How do you match that up with this verse where Jehovah says, I, I, Stretch forth the heavens alone. I spread, it, spread abroad the earth by myself. So when Colossians 1 says that all things were created by Jesus Christ, what's the implication? Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Very, very clear. And that's a great verse to use if you're talking to somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, Isaiah 44, verse 24. In the New Testament, we all know this verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one God and one mediator, one, and it is Jehovah. So when we think about numerically, he's the one and only, numerically, one. There is no such thing as a multiplicity of gods. There's polytheism is not the teaching of Scripture. So then we come to the second thought, uniquely one. Uniquely one. The Catechism's answer says, but one only. One only. And when you think about what is meant by uniquely one, is that he's the, the one and only. There's no other like him. Okay? There's no other like God. 
Nobody else. It's not just that there, you know, he's the only one that's called God, but nothing else is like God. Nothing. No being, no creation, nothing is like God. He is the one and only. In Exodus 15, verse 11, this is a great verse. This is the song of Moses. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So, who is like thee? Nobody. Nobody is like God. No one is like God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is a famous, famous word. This is the, um, the Shema that the Jews will say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. The Lord our God is what? One, right? And what is being um, communicated by the word one here is the idea that there is nobody like God. He's the one and only God. Um, Somebody named Louis Burkhoff uses this verse in his theology, and he says what this means is, when it says one, is one and only. He's talking about the fact that there is no other God like our God. All the supposed gods of the heathen nations, they are not God. There's one God. There's no one like our God. He is the only, the one and only. Um, Ephesians 4, 6 also says that there's one God, meaning that there's only one like there's only one God. Um, argument from logic. I just want to make you think about this for a second here. There cannot be more than one God. It's, a, it's not logically possible. Okay? If we define God as the scriptures define God. So what is God in the catechism? God is a spirit. He's a spirit, right? He is not physical. He's not corporeal. He is a spirit, meaning that he has intellect. He has will. He has, so he has a mind, he has a will, he has affections, but he is not a creation. He has no physicality to him. He is a spirit. He's infinite. He's limitless and boundless with respect to time, with respect to space. We've spoken about that. All of his attributes are limitless. He's eternal. So he has no bounds with regards to time. He's unchangeable. He cannot change. In his being, his very being cannot change because he's necessary, because he is. In his wisdom, in his knowledge and ability to apply that knowledge according to his own perfect nature, in power, in his ability to act, his holiness, his moral purity, remember his transcendent glory, his justice, that he does things always according to his law, his goodness, his love, his patience, his mercy, his grace, and his truth. He is a God who is truth. All that God is, when we think about God, We're not just saying, when we say, are there many gods, that there are many nondescript, are there many nondescript gods? We're asking the question, can there be many Jehovah's? Can there be many Jehovah's? And it's not possible. First of all, God is infinite. It's not possible to have two infinite beings. That's a logical absurdity. You cannot have two infinite anythings. Um... All-powerful. I'm sure you guys have heard about what would happen if an unstoppable force came up to an immovable object. What would happen? I don't know, because it's not possible. 
You can't have an immovable force coming to an unstoppable object. That's absurd. What would happen? Well, we don't have to ask that question because it's not possible. If you have two beings that are both all-powerful, that's impossible. So, say, for example, you have Jehovah, and he's all-powerful, and then, like somebody would say, Satan is all-powerful, which he's not. If, if Satan is all-powerful, then he must be more powerful than, than, than God. But if God's all-powerful, too, then he's not all-powerful if he's not more powerful than God. You see that? You can't have two all-powerful beings. It's not possible. You can't have two perfect beings. You can't. If, one, if God is perfect, He doesn't need added to. There's no change that's necessary. He is absolutely perfect. He's spotless in His glory and His majesty. He is the perfect God. And if He's perfect, there can't be another God, another God different from Him. Because that other God, if it was different from the perfect God, would be imperfect. So, there's only one perfect God. There's only one free and sovereign God. God is sovereign. That means He can do whatever He wants to do. How can you have two totally sovereign gods? So, they're both vying for power? If they're both vying for power, then one of them is not sovereign. Or they're both not sovereign. They're both not sovereign if they're both vying for power. There's only one that can be the sovereign king. There's only one that can be the almighty. Right? There are many mighties, but one almighty. That must be God. You can't have many gods. As far as God's work, there's only one creator. I mean, the Bible is so clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But even logically, there can only be one creator. Everything backs up to the beginning. And there must be one who began all things. And that must be the one God. As I said with sovereignty, providence, God's work of governing all things, there can only be one God who governs all things. There's only one God who has one great purpose, one great plan, one great reason for creating the world. And He is governing the world according to His perfect will and His perfect sovereignty is governing all things. That wouldn't be possible if there are many different gods with thousands of different purposes and all vying for power and sovereignty, as I mentioned. Redemption. There's one Redeemer. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. I am the Savior. There's none else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's only one Savior. And again, it brings to my mind in Titus when the Bible ascribes to Jesus the name Savior multiple times to the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, the deity of Christ is seen. He is called Savior. There's only one Savior. You can't have multiple redeemers. Only one redeemer. So he's uniquely one. There's only one who's creator, only one who's governor, only one who's redeemer, only one who's infinite, only one who's all-powerful, only one who's perfect. He's unique. There's nobody like God. There's nobody like Jehovah. And then he is simply one. So when, he, when you say, God is one, okay? God is one, you're saying, there's only one God. When you say, God is one, you're saying, he's not like anything else. And then when you say, God is one, you're also saying, God has no 
parts. God can't be divided. He's one. He's one. Take a car, for example. Is a car made up of parts? Yes. Let's say you take the car apart and you set the engine off by itself. And then you take the engine apart. And let's say you get down to a piece of metal. And then you can take apart that metal until you get down to the element. You can take apart the element until you get to the atomic particles behind it. You can't divide God up. God cannot be divided. God is. He is simply one. He's not made up of anything. No parts. Okay? He can't be, he can't be cut up and divided. So when we talk about, I want to make implications for the Trinity. Oh, by the way, John 10.30, I and my Father are one. The implication there is we cannot be divided. I and my Father are one. What about the Trinity? Now, when we think about the Trinity with, with this understanding that God is one. First place, the Trinity is not teaching polytheism. When we say, and we're going to take a number of weeks to look at the Trinity, and I want to look at it in depth, um, so that we're not just hit with, here are these verses, why there's a Trinity. We understand how the Trinity works in creation, in redemption, in sanctification, and we're able to um, apply that to our lives. The Trinity is not teaching polytheism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we say there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are not saying that there are three gods. We're not saying that there are three gods. That's called tritheism. That was something taught in church history. We are not saying that there are three gods. The Father is not a separate God from the Son, and a separate, the Son is a separate God from the Spirit. They are not three gods. There's a form of polytheism that can come in if we're not careful too. If we start thinking like this, well, the Father is, is the, the, the greatest one, and the Son is kind of below Him, and the Spirit is really below them both. Not as much God. Like there are degrees of God. So the Father is, is fully God, and then the Son is, is God, but He's not as much as God as the Father is God, and the Spirit is even less God. But again, God, God is one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there's not degrees in each of them. They are God. They are God. God is Trinity. God exists as a Trinity. God cannot be anything but Trinity. The Father is fully, holy, completely God. The Son is fully, holy, and completely God. And the Spirit is fully, holy, and completely God. And it's not like this. It's not that the Father is made up, if you can follow my logic here, not made up of God's stuff. And the Son is made up of God's stuff, and the Spirit's made up of God's stuff. So that it's like, well, the Father is God because, you know, He's made up of, of, of divine stuff. And the Son is God because He's made up of divine stuff and the Spirit, because He's made up of divine stuff. Like, you'll, you'll sometimes hear, God is, is like, um, like water, right? So you have water that's ice, and then water can become steam, and then water can just be water. But it's all water. And that's sometimes used as a picture of the Trinity. 
like the Father is, He's still water, and the Son is still water, but it's a different form. And the Spirit's still water, but it's a different form. That is not the Trinity. That is not the Trinity. It's not that they're each water, like they're each made up of God's stuff. If you understand what I mean by that. God is a Trinity. God is Trinity. He's not in different forms. It's not that God's in the Father form, the Son form, the Spirit form. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what it is to be God. Father, Son, and Spirit is God. Now, I'm going to go into that um, in, in detail and hopefully clarify a lot of these things. These are just big ideas in the coming weeks. So the Trinity is not teaching polytheism. The Trinity is not teaching degrees of God and God. And as I said, the Trinity is not teaching that there are just three different kind of forms of God. That's not the teaching of the Trinity either. The Trinity is an amazing doctrine. It is absolutely glorious. It's glorious. It doesn't need to be something where, where we, you know, we think this is just, this is so hard to understand. It's so difficult. Hopefully, as we go on the weeks ahead, we'll see how absolutely glorious the Trinity is. It, it is absolutely amazing um, what it shows us about God. But just remember that when we say Trinity, we are not denying God's unity. When we say that God has three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we are not saying there are three gods. Be careful with that. In your own heart and mind, remember that. When you pray to the Father in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, you're not praying to three gods. It's one God who as Father has elected, as Father has sent the Son, as Son has died, as Spirit has applied the gospel and regenerated the soul. God the Father, as a distinct person, has done that one, uh, has done His certain function, and the Son as a distinct person, and the Spirit as a distinct person. But, Lord willing, we'll look at that later on. I just have one last section here, living to God. And I'm going to try to put this at the end of um, our studies in the Trinity and whatever doctrine we look at. I mentioned this last, I think it was Wednesday, um, the Puritan William Ames, he wrote a theology, and in that theology, he defined theology not as many do as the study of God, theology, study of God, or talk about God, but he defined it as living to God. And what he meant by that is nobody is a true student of God if they do not live in the light of those truths. And all doctrine is meant for living. All doctrine, including today, the unity of God. If we, all we do is talk about the unity of God and walk out and think, okay, now I've got some facts. We've really not grasped the doctrine. It has to sink from head to heart. It has to be lived. So how do we live the oneness of God? Well, in the first place, since God is one, the church should seek to imitate Him in unity. Ephesians 4, 3-6, Paul makes this implication directly. He says there is one God. There's one Lord. There's one faith, one baptism, etc. There's one God. We are to understand that we are all in this one God. 
And God is unified. God is one. We are in Christ. We're indwelt by the Spirit. And we are to show the unity that is in God in the unity that is in His church. We are to be like God. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And the highest call for a human being is to be like His Father. It's to be like His God. And it is a, a terrible thing, and I'll touch on this actually in the morning message on unity, when human beings, through sin, allowed enmity into this world, and war and, and hatred and all these things came, came into the world, you know what the depth of that was? When the image bearers of God Adam and Eve created to be in harmony with one another as a representation of how the Father, Son, and Spirit are in unity and in harmony and in perfect love. And then Adam and Eve sin, and now the image bearers of God are at enmity with one another, against one another, fighting one another, hating one another, even murdering one another. And even more so, how distorted is it for the Church of Christ who is in this God to not be unified. We ought to be unified as our God is, in harmony with one another as our God is, one as our God is. And then second, since God is one, He is uniquely supreme. Therefore, we ought to give ourselves wholly to Him. Um, in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus speaks about the oneness of God. And he says this, the first of all, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So he's one, right? He's, there's only one. He's uniquely one. And he's one, meaning he's, he's simply one. He has not, he's not made up of anything. He is one. And what's the implication? And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Why is that what Christ says after there's one God? Because what Jesus is saying is there is, there is one. There is one creator. There is one redeemer. There is one who's king. There's one who's perfect love. There's one who's perfectly holy. There's one who is the joy and delight of, of human beings. There's only one. There's nothing else. So anything else we chase after, whether it's whatever it might be, okay? Lust, greed, money, doesn't matter. Fame, all of it. It's a fake mimic of what we have in God. It's an idol. God is the chief object of delight and joy. And He alone must be given our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strengths. That's the implication. There's one God. There's one Lord. So our affections are all, our everything, our lives are absolutely everything is to be given to this one uniquely supreme and glorious God. That's the implication that God is one. So we're not giving more worship to the Father, more to the Son, less to the Spirit. 
we are worshiping the one God. We see the Father in the Son. It is in the Son we see the Father. And the Spirit opens our eyes to see the Son, shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts. We are worshiping the Trinity and giving our all to the Trinity, giving our everything to this Trinitarian God who is one. So I have a couple minutes. No, that's a, this is a heavy subject, but Lord willing, as the weeks go by, I'll become more clear. Does anybody have any questions or any thoughts? All right. Well, let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee that we come to the one and only true and living God. We bless Thee and we're grateful that we were not left to ourselves, that we have not been left in idolatry, but that You have called us to Yourself to delight in Thee, to joy in God. There's no other object. God is our exceeding joy. Father, bless Thy people. Bless the service this morning. And Lord, be with us, we pray, in the prayer meeting next door. Help us as we seek Your face. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.